All right, everybody, welcome to this very special edition of the Compliance Sky Live. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to say thank you for logging on, tuning in, and just hanging out with me and my special guests. That's right, you heard me right. Today, I have guests that are joining me in the studio today, and I am so happy to welcome them both back. Uh, Brianna Santoli is an attorney with Riker Danzig Schur, Highland, and Peretti, out of Morristown, New Jersey. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with that firm, it is actually the oldest law firm in the state of New Jersey, dating back to the mid to late 1800s. And they have a very, very storied um, um, existence and, and quite a fascinating story. And Brianna is um, uh, uh, an up-and-coming rising star in the world of uh, health law. She's somebody that I've gotten an opportunity to spend a lot of time with over uh, the last couple of months on a couple of different podcasts. For those of you that tune in and listen to us, um, you've had an opportunity, just as I have, to get to realize what an incredibly talented and well-versed uh, attorney she actually is, but more importantly, how fair and balanced and reasonable she is. So. Um, Brianna is going to be jumping in here in just a moment, and my other special guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyways. It's my good friend, Terry Fletcher. Uh, Terry uh, joins me on Hashtag Terry Tuesdays, where we get an opportunity to talk about various auditing and uh, compliance topics, and as you all know, Terry is unafraid, unabashed, and completely willing to put it all out there so that you are getting the facts and avoiding the fiction. So ladies, welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here today because this is such an incredible topic. And before we really dive into what we're talking about today, I want to lay this out here from the beginning. This is not a political podcast. Don't try to turn it into one. I'm not talking to my guests. I'm talking to any of the viewers. <laughs> okay. Do not try to turn this into a political podcast because it's not. Unlike the mainstream media on both sides, we are not giving you our commentary. We are giving you the facts as they are pushed out through governmental sources, through the court systems. And these are our not only professional opinions and interpretations of what these rules and standards actually say, but how they're actually written. So ladies, again, welcome to the Compliance Guide podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And let's, uh, let's dive right in. So Thank Brianna, yeah, yeah, thanks good for morning. Us. Good mo yeah, it's a pleasure. I love having you guys. Um, so, you know, Brianna, we're going to, we're going to be talking about two things today, right? We're going to be talking about the omnibus rule, which ties directly to the Biden-Harris administration mandates on COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, I don't know that we're really going to get into the nuance and the granularity of, you know, mask requirements, but we are going to address certain things such as the religious exceptions. We're going to talk about medically necessary, medically appropriate exceptions that actually exist that, you know, Healthcare professionals can um, request if they are undergoing specific types of treatment for underlying systemic chronic diseases. And we're going to talk about the emergency temporary standards that have been issued through OSHA because I think there's a lot of confusion between those. And then obviously, Terry, you know, I think it's extremely important to be able to talk about you know, some of the latest releases that you actually came across from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, what you call the Big Bird Effect. And um, yeah. <laughs> we'll kind of we'll kind of go through those as well. So, um, Counselor, if you don't mind, you know, would you would you go ahead for our listeners and viewers, go ahead and, and give us a background first into the omnibus rule, if you would. Sure. Um, you know, I think the two rules, the omnibus rule and the OSHA rule coming out at the same time has caused some confusion for people in terms of who do they apply to or what in terms of facilities and what are the requirements because they are um, a little different, but similar enough to just make it that much more confusing. Um, so in terms of the omnibus rule that has been released as an interim final rule 
there is a comment period. Um, I actually checked in this morning and there's already close to 200 comments, which is not surprising. Um, and so under that rule, it's requiring COVID vaccination for healthcare facilities that are Medicare certified. And in terms of that definition, it's facilities that are regulated under the Medicare conditions of participation. Um, right. So we're really talking about facilities. So, you know, you know, we're not talking about small physician practices. We're, we're talking about facilities that undergo certification. They undergo on-site inspections and they are what are referred to as a Medicare certified entity, right? Yes. And those okay. facilities are listed right in the rule. So in terms of if there's any confusion for any of the listeners or viewers, does my facility qualify under the rule? There's a list right in there explicitly stating these are the facilities that are within the ambit of the omnibus rule. Um, and with that, there is also explicitly stated that it does not apply to individual physician offices. Um, the only caveat where it starts to get a little confusing in terms of application is whether or not a, a physician office employs a physician who then works at one of the facilities that falls within the rule. Essentially, if you enter one of these facilities in your uh, the scope of your employment, then you may be you may have to um, get vaccinated under the omnibus rule. Right. And if you don't mind real quick. So to uh, Brianna's point in the omnibus rule, there is an extensive list. If you don't mind, I'll just share because a lot of folks aren't going to go out and take the time to read I the omnibus rule. I think that's and, a great um, idea. <laughs> Yeah, let me let me share with some of the folks that are listening. So the requirements apply to ambulatory surgical centers, hospices, programs of all inclusive care for the elderly, hospitals, long term care facilities, psychiatric residential treatment facilities, intermediate care facilities for individuals with intellectual disabilities, home health agencies, comprehensive outpatient rehabilitation facilities, better known as CORFs critical access hospitals, clinics, and they, they, they parens this with rehabilitation agencies and public health agencies as providers of outpatient physical therapy and speech language pathology services, community mental health centers, home infusion therapy suppliers, rural health clinics, federally qualified health centers, and end-stage renal disease facilities. And I will make sure that we post a link to the sourced information that uh, Brianna, Terry, and I are providing for you today. So thanks, uh, Counselor. I, I apologize. I didn't mean to step on what you were saying, but I just want to make sure that, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cut it off at the pass because I know there's going to be a lot of comments that come in, you know, what facilities are covered under this. So I, I just thought we'd head it off at the pass. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. No need to spend, uh, you know, your Friday night reading through the omnibus rule if we can just provide the synopsis, the important points for you. Um, you mean I'm the only person that did that? Uh, me too. So, you know, what? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> two peas in a pod. <laughs> that's it. That's but, it. Um, All right. Go, go ahead, please. Let's, let's yeah. keep going on that. So you were talking about the fact that it doesn't pertain to individual or small physician group practices but right. it could pertain if they are contracted to or employed as part of a hospital network or a health system. Yes. And so it's going to be really important for physician offices to make sure you have an accurate understanding of where your employees, you know, this is not only physicians, it's staff, it's nursing, it's, you know, anyone who's entering the facility. And so uh, you need to make sure you know where everyone is working and going because you may not qualify as a physician office. However, one of your employees may be working at one of the qualified facilities. Um, yeah. And, and, and Terry, you know, I, I know you've been, you're as on top of this as, as anybody. 
Um, one of the things, because we are a compliance-related program, one of the things that I, I also wanted to point out is that as part of the omnibus rule, there is not there's an additional mandate, right? And that additional mandate is that facilities covered by this regulation must establish a policy ensuring all eligible staff have received their first dose of the two-dose COVID vaccine uh, or one-dose COVID vaccine. So it's not just enough to say that, you know, we're going to be compliant with it. You have to actually create a policy so that if you are investigated or if you are audited um, and they're looking to, you know, slap a fine on somebody, you better have a policy in writing to be able to substantiate what you're doing, right? That's correct. The first dose or the one dose vaccine has to be by December 6th and then all shots for full vaccination by January 4th. They actually put out something this morning when I say they, I mean CMS on how is this going to be enforced? And so they said on-site survey reviews. So they, somebody could actually come to your office and say, hand me your policy on this. Uh, it has to be a plan for vaccinating all eligible staff, and they have to show that they've met those thresholds. Um, they have to make sure that they provide accommodations for those who are exempt. So let's say that you are have one facility in particular that's in um, Utah, and it's very heavy populated with um, Jehovah's Witness um, religious um, people. So they basically said what we had to do is we had people coming out of the woodwork saying that um, that was my religious exemption. The problem is, is they had a lot of people that never once attended a religious church in that, you know, um, venue or whatever you want to call it. And so they had to come up and say, okay, we need to see something from your uh, church leader that says that you've been there at least, at least a year. Uh, I mean, these policies are crazy that you go every week that, you you know, and something that reflected that they were actually a member of that religion to be able to claim the exception. I, <laughs> in a minute, I'll, I'll be interested to see Brianna's take on that to be that intrusive. But I understand that a lot of people are trying to say, well, you know, I'm Catholic or I'm non-denominational this, or I'm, you know, I'm Hindu. I don't know. I just think that there's certain religious exemptions that they're going to have to be able to say, I practice that religion. But I wanted to just comment on something you were talking about as far as who's covered in the facility. Something that came out this morning that talked about um, the coverages and things like that. They also mentioned the telehealth worker because some of some people are like, well, you know, I have a staff member that's 100% works remotely. Okay, so they work remotely 100%, but they have to not have any direct contact with patients or other staff. So if they're fully remotely telehealth or payroll services, then no, they may not be subject to vaccine requirements. But let's say that they're a 100% remote worker and somebody says, hey, can you stop by our surgery center so that you can drop off payroll and uh, there's patients there? You better believe that's going to be a problem. So I would think, Brianna, correct? I mean, there's these crossover or like um, weird lines where there could be where hundred percent is, is a lot. And I think a lot of people are probably 99%. Right. So I think hundred percent would be tough. Yeah. When they say a hundred, they really mean 100%. 100. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 you know, you brought up something really interesting, um, you know, Terry and Brianna, I'm sure you saw this as well. You know, you started talking about the enforcement process, right. And, and that it would be yeah. done as part of a survey. Um, and, you know, there, there's a section where they're talking about this, where it actually says, um, if the supplier does not meet the requirements, it will be cited by a surveyor as being non-compliant and have an opportunity to return to compliance before additional actions occur. And it goes on to say, quote unquote, and, and listen to this. See, this is the part that bothers me because it's very heavy handed. And I don't know that they needed to say this, but here's what it says, quote unquote. The agency will not hesitate to use its full enforcement authority to protect the health and safety of patients. I well, mean, the other thing is, Sean, there, did you see the other thing that came out? It says, if a facility does not return to compliance after having an opportunity to, it is at risk for additional enforcement actions, including losing Medicare or Medicaid payment. You know, you and I have always said, if you want to find 
Um, I hate to throw this word out, but if you want to find corruption or where the problem is, follow the money. Well, look at where we have to follow that money. I mean, how threatening somebody with their livelihood and let's get back to the mandates. You know, you either you either get vaccinated or you lose your job. And now you either get vaccinated as a as a you know medical facility or you lose your reimbursement. This is what we have a problem with, or I should make it me, but this is what I have a problem with. It's not the vaccine itself, it's the mandate and how they're handling it. Yeah. Fair enough. So, you know, counselor, can you can you talk um a little bit about, you know, because I think that's one of the biggest fears, right? Is the the fear of revocation of a Medicare yeah. billing number. Um, you know, especially for, you know, specialties whereby, um, you know, let's not say specialties, let's say facilities like a CORF or a home health agency where greater than 60% of their remunerations come from federal dollars. I mean, you know, how do, how do people handle this? And, and is there anything going on right now in the legal world that would speak to the potentiality of some of this stuff being overturned? Well, in terms of the omnibus rule, um, interestingly, it provides less options for the healthcare providers that are working in these facilities. Um, you know, when you turn to the OSHA emergency temporary standard that was issued, and that applies to uh, employees that work at a um, somewhere that has 100 or more employees. And, you know, this is something I've brought up in prior podcasts with you, Sean, and that's 100 employees doesn't depend on the nature of the work or the actual closeness. There's no social distancing considerations in right. there. So it's 100 employees, even if every single person is in their own office with a door. Um, so it's a hundred employees or more, and that, that emergency temporary standard has a testing option though. And that's, I think the key distinction between Medicare's omnibus rule and OSHA's ETS. And so yeah. under the ETS, there's a vaccine requirement or a weekly testing option with um, a mask mandate. So you don't have to be vaccinated. You can still um, go to work, but you have to submit to a weekly test to show that you're negative for COVID and wear a mask at the office, which for many offices, that's the current practice, uh, you know, test in a mask or at the very least a mask if you're not vaccinated. And that provides a more reasonable option for employees. In terms, though, of the OSHA ETS and legal action, there is currently pending in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals a, an, a petition for an injunction to stay the enforcement of the OSHA ETS. And that petition was temporarily granted on November 6th, I believe. Yeah. And right now, you know, the parties are briefing and trying to convince the Court of Appeals why the injunction should be entered permanently. Um, hopefully we'll have a decision on that soon. But essentially, you know, the there are a bunch of states, in addition to private businesses, that are arguing that the ETS is not, um, it's not necessary, that OSHA hasn't demonstrated reasons for as to why it's necessary. It's placing a, a burden on employers in what's already a tight and difficult labor market. Um, and so therefore, the enforcement should be permanently stayed. You know, it's illegal, yeah. essentially. Um, and that's currently pending. So we've already seen the legal world get to action. Yeah, I mean, um, I knew this. Go, go ahead, Terry. Quick, go can ahead. I have a quick question on this? So let's sure. say that you have a, an employer that's over 100 employees, and I'm just going to throw out their AT&T, mm -hmm. because they are really big in California, and they haven't, they have a union, and they have, they have union issues, and then they have what they want to do. So, and I have a lot of friends that work for, for that company, and they, for this point, they haven't done any mandates, but they just came out and said, we're now going to mandate vaccines. 
Well, the union said, not so fast. <laughs> you know, right. we're, 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 this is something that has to be under discussion, everything. So how does that work legally? If you have a company saying that we're, as a private company, we're going to follow our own policies and we've decided to implement, uh, you know, the um, vaccine mandate. But then you have a union area that's saying that, well, we're going to allow either or. So the testing at the employee's expense plus mask all the time or a vaccine. Um, and they want to follow what their union says. How does that work for the employee? Can they still be terminated if they don't follow what the company policy says, regardless of, irregardless of the um, union? So this is something that I'm not an expert in. I don't practice employment law, so I don't I can't really speak as to what the final result would be there in terms of can you follow what the union's doing or what the company's doing? But I would imagine, though, that is going to then result in lawsuits being filed Illegal by to, the union yeah. Yeah. Um, or, you know, whether they have many uh, union and company relationships are governed by arbitration provisions. So I'm sure that's where right. that will go. But, you know, it's interesting to think about because I, I don't know if OSHA was necessarily thinking about the tensions between a union and the yeah. company when issuing the emergency the temporary standard. You know, it just goes to show there because, are so many unforeseen yeah. consequences. Well, they've got it with teaching too. Yep. You know, my, my daughter's a teacher. And so she's, she's like, well, we also get to choose whether we want to be part of the union. She's yeah. like, she goes, I chose to be vaccinated, but a lot of our teachers chose not to. She goes, we're in Arizona and it's a state where it's actually illegal to force vaccines. She goes, but she says they actually put out a law and then you've got other employers going, we'll do it anyway. So, I mean, yeah. the legal thing here, Brianna, you're going to, you're going to be 150 years old before you're done with all these. <laughs> like, right. Well, that's the interesting yeah. point you bring up too, is that, you know, the emergency temporary standard and the uh, omnibus role will preempt any state law. So that's great that Arizona has that law. It doesn't really mean anything though, in terms of compliance when right. it comes to these two right. things. So it's really turning a lot of things just on their heads. And, you know, I, I think for those who are legal scholars, uh, you know, what they refer to as constitutionalists, or even for people who are um, just, you know, um, interested in how the legal system works, you know, looking at this case that was filed with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit um, you know, really, you know, as you said, it includes a number of states. Well, the states that are included are Louisiana, Utah, Texas, South Carolina, and Mississippi. And what they did was they they began questioning the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's authority in using the rule. And the interesting part about what this three-panel uh, uh, group of judges wrote is that you know, there is cause to believe there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate. Right. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we we kind of had a very quick conversation, the three of us, before we we, um, you know, kicked off the show, which is, you know, do we really consider the ETS to be a mandate like we do? For the omnibus rule, right? Because the omnibus rule is is the Harris, well, I'm sorry, the Biden Harris administration's um, attempt to require <laughs> to mandate um, the American people, um, what was it, more than 80 million healthcare workers to receive a vaccine, and you know there there were some exceptions that were built into it but we saw as with the state of new york where new york said they weren't going to honor any religious exemptions which i think they've kind of shied away from right now because i think they realized that was potentially going to be a losing battle in court yeah. right um but you know you look at the ets and you say i don't know that this is truly a mandate because the ETS, to your point, Brianna, and also to yours, Terry, is that it allows for an option. And for me, allowing an option is not a mandate. It's you either get vaccinated or you submit to weekly testing and you wear a mask, which to me, I think is actually very reasonable. 
Yeah, I think you know, the problem my, in my opinion, right now is that that the the headlines are not reflecting the choice. The yeah. headlines are just saying vaccine mandates. You read anything, you know, and that's the thing, you know, I want to also kind of say that to your listeners. Try not to be somebody who just clickbaits, that you just click on an article and you don't read it. Uh, one of the things that I, I appreciate about Brianna is that when she posts something, there's always an article to follow. When we post something, we try to bring the information that's right. you know current, accurate, and detailed with what's going on. But so many people clickbait and they look just at the headline. They don't read the details and they think, okay, now we have a mandate for this. And that's what they're running with. And you look at it and like, no, there is no mandate. It's actually a choice. Right. It's, you right. know, it's an inference on what you have to do this or do this. Yeah. You know, I so. think that's such a I think that's such a great point. Go ahead, Brianna. No, I was just gonna say, and I think you know, the point in t- that um journalists are what they're trying to do in terms of publishing these clickbait headlines, it I think it's fear-mongering. You know, you know that there is a lot yeah. of tension surrounding this vaccine and cause for concern and uh misinformation and all of a sudden there's all this controversy and then all the headlines just say mandate, mandate, mandate. Well, for the people who are right. really scared to get this vaccine, which is a large percentage of the American population, it's that's fear-mongering, you know? It's not informative journalism, and it's unfortunate because I think it causes the American people stress, and who needs more of that in a time that's COVID, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, and, and you and know, the- I, I've not shied away from this, you know, this this topic in the past, right? You know, for me... The, the the vaccine for me, I I had to weigh the benefits versus the potential, uh, you know, adverse outcome of not getting it, which is potentially death, right? And you know, for me, having you know heart disease, um, you know, advanced atherosclerosis, you know, having had three stents put into my heart just last year, you know, being borderline diabetic, um, no matter how much I watch what I eat, um, you know, no matter how much I try to engage in exercise, you know, as the doctors say, you know, sometimes you just can't outrun your genetics. So for me, you know, my fear, my fear was coming from my physicians who I was able to engage in a healthy conversation with who did not make it a political issue, but who rather looked at it and said, Sean, Based on the clinical evidence that we have at this point and what we know, and given your underlying health issues, it's my opinion as your physician to recommend that you move forward with getting vaccinated. Because, you know, while we don't truly understand what the long term effects are going to be at this point, we know that the short term is that we can keep you out of the hospital and we can keep you from dying. And for me, as a husband, a father, a grandfather, for me, that was all I needed to hear. And, you know, so again, I've said this a hundred thousand times and I'll say it a hundred thousand more. This for me is not a political issue. For me, this is following the science and, you know, understanding who the high risk groups are, who the low risk groups are, and then allowing people the freedom to make a decision just as I did as to what is right for me. So again, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I, I, I get my flu shot every year. You know, when I hit, you know, 50 years old in a couple of years, I'm going to get my pneumococcal vaccine. I'm probably because I had chicken pox as a kid. I'm probably going to get the one that prevents me from getting shingles. So I am I am a firm believer in vaccines. I just don't want somebody telling me I have to do it. If there's another alternative that's available to keep me and the people that I'm surrounded by safe. Right. 
And that's right. getting well, weekly testing and wearing right. a mask. But right. ahead, they think, I think the one thing that just to circle back to, you know, who is who is this affects and everything. So let's say that you're a physician's office that is exempt. OK, because you, you're not certified through Medicare. But let's say you just uh, purchased and now have or basically opened an ASC. So an ambulatory surgery center. Guess what? You now fall under one of the facilities now that is part of that, especially if your physicians work there. If you're an ACO, so an accountable care organization, meaning that you're hospital owned or you participate in that with a facility that is part of this mandate, guess what? You're now part of this. And if your physicians, I think Brianna and Sean brought this up before, if your physicians work at one of these facilities and are you know on staff there and have privileges there, you may all be subject to that. I would talk to medical staff office. But my biggest thing, and this is where it makes me very nervous as far as a mandate. Where does it end? Mm -hmm. So when they're talking now about boosters and they're talking about, you know, they don't mandate flu shots. They don't, you know, and that probably wouldn't be a bad idea, except they're only, what, 45% effective. So, I mean, they're helpful, definitely, but doesn't mean you're not going to get the flu. It just means you may not get it as bad. But where does it end? If we allow certain mandates to happen as a one-size-fits-all, then are they going to say that everybody now, they're going to lose their job if they don't, you know, get the booster, if they don't do this? So that's where my issue is, and especially because a lot of the mandates are coming from people that do not have a medical background. Our HHS secretary has is not a physician, and he does not have even a science degree. So, I mean, he basically at one of the uh, hearings at Congress, when one of the um, people were talking to him, Congress were talking to him, he basically said, almost like, I play one on TV. I mean, he was like, well, I've done a lot of research on this and I've done that. Too many times physician practices get in trouble because they use nurses as nurse practitioners and medical assistants as nurses. Just because you've been doing it for a while doesn't make you qualified to be able to, you know, give this information. And I think when Sean mentioned follow the science, at least for me, I mean, what science? Is it the the person right now that's out there touting what should be done, but then goes on and, you know, meets with 100 people without a mask and who knows, and doesn't follow their own protocols? Or is it your own physician, your own personal physician that gives you that information? And I guess that's a question for everybody. Absolutely. And just to, I want to go back sure. to just one thing that Terry said in terms of the um, you know, you bring up a good point with the ambulatory surgery centers and ACOs. And um, in terms of the OSHA ETS, the way that they're calculating that hundred number of employees, there are a couple different things that you need to know. And the first being that independent contractors do not qualify as employees for purposes of this emergency temporary standard. That is so important, Brianna. That is, because we're consultants. Right, so right. that's that's interesting. Yeah, we're consultants. And I think, okay. you know, there are a couple other things, but on that point, doesn't it go to whether or not there's a grave danger as to whether the people are physically in the workspace? But if you're an independent contractor, then suddenly there's no grave danger. See, that to me, that's sloppy yeah. um, in terms of drafting yes. something like this. And that's, where it, that's right for legal challenges. Um, but then another interesting thing in terms of calculating the 100, if it's just 100 employees, whether they are remote or in office does not matter. So you could have- I yeah, was just going there. And I'm that's so interesting glad you to me that too, up. because you could have an, an office of, that employs 200 people, uh, 175 of them work remotely. You know, that was like during the pandemic, my law firm, the majority of us were home. We had some necessary staff members in there to kind of keep things moving. Uh, but that was under 20. Under this emergency temporary standard, even though 175 people are home, those 25 people would still have to get vaccinated because the employer as a whole employs 100 or more people. And I just think that's interesting too, because if it's about in person, well, Brianna, where do they where, where do they come up with the hundred? Because I'm finding that the smaller businesses have a better opportunity, or I should say, 
a possible opportunity of more close contact. Right. So I'm I'm trying to figure out where you know the the employers who have the space yeah. for a hundred more people can actually spread people out. So where do they come up with that? Totally. That That's something person? I've been thinking of too in terms of is this uh, emergency temporary standard tailored to the needs for vaccination or you know the testing option and that okay 100 employees yes you would assume that's a lot of people but you know i work in an office of 100 or more employees i am currently sitting in my office by myself that has a door alone yeah. and the, the closest person next to me is through a wall um whereas <laughs> You know, if you think about smaller, you know, under 100 employees, yes, of course, there are office settings, but that's also retail. That's restaurant businesses, small businesses in smaller right. spaces. And listen, again, I'm not a medical professional and am in no way an expert as to how COVID is contracted. But everything that we've been told is that it's closeness. So to me, it'd make more sense if we had an emergency temporary standard that said, if you have X number of people who can't social distance or work closely together or frequently interact with customers and clients face-to-face, -face, that would make sense to me. I get that. Well, you know, it's funny because you just brought something up that I, just two funny, really funny things that, that happened to me recently. So I'm, I'm giving a presentation on a webinar. We had about a hundred people on there. And one of the gals on the Q and A, she said, Terry, I have to ask you, are you vaccinated? And I, I wanted to say that's really not your concern, but I try to be very forthright, you know, and I'm like, I go, yes, I am. Why do you ask? And she said, well, because I heard you can connect, you can get it now through the computer. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, people, people. Okay. <laughs> I know Sean's in there like, oh my gosh. And then I know, sorry, Sean, but that did happen. And then on a recent podcast, I was talking to Amanda Weish, one of our uh, NSCHBC members, and um, there's a restaurant my husband and I frequent. And they basically uh, have a thing where you have to show your vaccine card when you when you come in. Well, they don't have you show it when you come in to um, with the hostess. They have you show it when you sit down. So you're walking through the yeah. restaurant <laughs> and everything, and you sit down. Right. All and the way so to they come chair. To, yeah, they come to your table and they're basically like, um, "Hi, can we see your vaccine cards?" And I said, "Sure, can I see yours?" Oh, and they're like, yeah. "Wait, what?" And I said, I just want to see yours. And I would like to see anybody in your kitchen and also all your staff. And I'm happy to show you mine. And they're like, oh, well, not everybody here is vaccinated. I'm like, like, get out of my face. But no, but I didn't say that. But that's, you know, that was the kind feeling. of like, wait a minute. Yeah. So it's just like you said, things are so absurd truly, right now. Truly. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's. Um... Oh, I, I know. It's a, head, you know, it's a head scratcher. You just sit there and go, what? We've rendered into speechless, I, I, folks. You know, there, we, I, we, and it's hard to do. It, 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 I was going to say, that doesn't happen easily. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, for me, I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, you can, you can catch COVID through the computer. <laughs> the computer. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh. I thought she was kidding. I started laughing and she oh, wasn't. Wow. It, oh, it reminds me of the Iron Man movie, um, The Age of <laughs> Ultron, where Ultron comes alive. And yeah. I, I'm a Marvel fan. I'm one of those geeks. So, uh, you know, maybe COVID is maybe coming too, through your, your, your <laughs> maybe COVID's coming through the microphone. I don't know. But anyways, en uh, enough about that. So let's let's kind of let's tie this thing together with a pretty bow if we can. Right. And and. Let me kind of try to summarize this thing. One, the omnibus rule is without a doubt a mandate because there's no provisions in there for an alternative, such as weekly testing, wearing of masks, or anything like that. Irrespective of where your employees are located, whether they're located in the same location or if they're working remote, if you have 100 employees or more, you are bound to this mandate. Three, if you are a Medicare certified facility, and we gave you a whole list of what those facilities are, you are bound to the mandate. Small physician practices 
that are not contracted to one of those types of facilities or employed by one of those facilities, meaning you're in private practice, are not necessarily bound to the omnibus rule. The enforcement, as Terry pointed out, <laughs> excuse me, is going to be done via surveys. And if you are found to be non-compliant, the surveyor will issue a citation prior to any further action taking place, you will actually be afforded an opportunity to come into compliance. But if you don't, your failure to comply could be escalated to the point where you could be stripped of the ability to receive future remunerations from the federal payer programs until you are in compliance. Correct. Shifting from that, because the ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standards, this is not the same thing as the Omnibus Rule. The ETS is through OSHA. It's through the Occupational uh, Safety and Health Administration. Okay, This, even though some are referring to it as a mandate, it's really not a mandate in our right. opinion. Because to us, people actually have an option. You have an option of getting vaccinated or you have the option of weekly testing and wearing a mask. So again, the ETS, you are obligated to comply with if you are a small physician practice. So the ETS is irrespective of size. Right? And you need to have this written up. You need to make sure that you have a policy nope. written up in there yep. as well. Yep. I'm, I'm wrong. The ETS pertains to... Is it, yeah, it, so the omnibus rule yeah, right. is not size-related. Yeah. The ETS is. That's right. Had that backwards. I'm human. Uh, I, I, I make <laughs> mistakes. So the omnibus rule, irrespective of the size of your organization, it is a mandate. Right. The ETS is for employers with 100 or greater employees, and it doesn't matter where they are, whether they're in a building or they're remote, but we are still waiting on the Fifth Circuit Court to rule on the ETS, quote-unquote, mandate, which was the lawsuit brought by those five uh, um, states. states, I yeah. believe it was, and correct? Just one so, thing I want to add about the please, ETS yeah. is that, yes, it is, regardless of whether those employees are home or in person, For per, but the actual vaccination is only required of people in person. If you are a 100% remote worker, your body is only used for whether the ETS is triggered for your employer. You don't have to get vaccinated or sit at your you know, home desk wearing a mask if you are teleworking. It is just for those in-person employees. So also just to clarify too, the omnibus is for the Medicare program. That's the federal program. And the ETS is for basically yeah. everybody else. And the other thing I wanted to point out, too, for those listeners, if you are somebody who is choosing or can't get vaccinated, and so you have the other option of testing and wearing a mask, the testing expense is on you. So that is something that has been a big deal. It, the employer does not have to provide that to you for free like the vaccines are free. You would have to pay for that. And, and I don't know if you know this now. It's different than 2020. Testing's expensive. Those, I mean, the rapid testings are 100 to $125. So be aware, you might want to do some research on that if that's the, the choice right. you're making. Yep. Those are all great points. Brianna, anything else you want to finalize with for us on this yes, episode? One more, one more thing. And, please, you know, please. with both the omnibus rule and the ETS, there are, of course, religious exemptions. That does not make either one less of a mandate. You cannot, it is a constitutional uh, issue. You cannot impose something against someone, uh, against their religious belief. But the standard for that is that it has to be a sincerely, sincerely held religious belief. And this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Terry, mm -hmm. in that it's 
it may seem intrusive, but the standard is sincerely held. So there has to be some investigation into whether or not that is sincerely held, not just by the religion. You know, I there are plenty of religions that do not speak on vaccination or have any sort of belief right position regarding right. vaccination. So you can't then just that you know rely on a a random personal belief. That's that's different under the law. So it's sincerely held religious belief, not only of the religion that you're practicing, but also that you in fact hold it. So I was baptized Catholic. I've received all of my sacraments. If I can't prove that I have this sincerely held religious belief in lines with Catholicism, well, then I may be out of luck if the Catholic Church spoke on vaccines. And so that's why it is it can be seem seemingly intrusive, but I'm sure we can all easily imagine a scenario where the population of people that do not want to get vaccinated all of a sudden are the holiest people we've ever met and are going to church every Sunday and living <laughs> by the Lord. So well, well you in know, California I, I, I'm like suspect, yeah. I'll 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 tie something to that. And 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 before I before I leave you guys with my little anecdote. Um it there's also the medical yes, exception. Yes. Yep. The oh, rule. Yes. Right. And, you know, this is really important for healthcare workers. Because is this the Aaron Rodgers exception. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. <laughs> He's like, there's hey, Terry. <laughs> you said it. Um, yeah, it's actually, well, anyways, I'm not going to get <laughs> yeah, into Aaron Rodgers. Um, so, you know, here's, here's the thing. If you're, if you're a healthcare, if you're a healthcare worker and you have a legitimate medical condition for which you are receiving treatment and getting vaccinated would hasten that underlying condition as long as it's well documented that you have been receiving this treatment that is one of the other exceptions to the mandate whereby it has to be given consideration yeah. absolutely right right okay so so this has to be well documented. Yep. So so my anecdote that I'll leave you all with is <laughs> when I fly, okay, and I fly all the time. Believe it or not, even in this crazy year, I just made diamond medallion on Delta again. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm proud of it, but in 2021, I have flown 168,000 miles. I don't wow. I don't know how I've accomplished that, but apparently I have because I just got my new 2022 Delta diamond credentials. But, you know, you all are talking about <clears throat> the religious aspect of it. For me, I always get a kick out of when, you know, you walk up to the, to the gate and you see a line of people sitting in wheelchairs and they're all the folks that are pre-boarded, right? And of course, you know, the airline can't say, oh, you know, prove that you have this disability or this you know, affliction that requires you to be in a wheelchair. But, you know, my last flight that I just came back from, which was Dallas um, this past Monday, I think it was, no, a week ago Monday, um, there were, I think, seven or eight folks sitting in wheelchairs waiting to pre-board for the flight from Dallas Love back here to Atlanta. But yet when we got to Atlanta and I got off the airplane, because I was up front, so I got to see, you know, how many wheelchairs were waiting. There were two. And apparently, <laughs> that holy recycled air has cured their afflictions and their inability to oh walk. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and, and you know. And, You're going to get cards and letters. I'm just saying. That's okay. Uh, you know, stop it, people. Stop it. These stop these, it. these poor people that have to wheel people down the ramps that's a dangerous job man have you ever seen what happens when there's a, a getaway wheelchair that's a dangerous situation I have not. man oh boy so, <laughs> a runaway wheelchair okay i have and my favorite is when you go to vegas when you know you get on an airplane in west palm beach florida and there's like 27 wheelchairs and when you get to las vegas 
there's like no wheelchairs and the people are running like they're they're stopping at the slot machines before they even get on the train oh, to go man. to baggage. Just Sean, we used to we used to tease my grand my grandmother about that. She was 95 years old and she basically said that she just didn't understand the voting process. But yeah, I'm telling you when that then Brown and I had the same grandma. It was her great grandmother, great great because we're we're cousins. But it was just funny because remember Nan? Oh, she yeah. had the bingo. She would have like 20 bingo cards oh, yeah. in front of her, but she couldn't yeah. figure out the voting process. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. Too funny. What a woman. What a woman. I know. I I, I won't ask which party she voted for. We'll leave it at that. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) So with that said, I want to say thank you to my two incredible guests. And, you know, I'm I'm so, you know, uh, honored and humbled to be able to call you guys my friends. Um, Really enjoy getting an opportunity to spend time with you. I know our listeners really are excited uh, to get this information broken down in lay terms. And I know we're talking about something that's not really an easy topic to talk about because of the highly charged political nature of it. But, you know, we, we give you the facts. We share with you what's going on from an unbiased, nonpartisan position so that you understand how to attack these things yourself and how to make the decisions that need to be made both personally and professionally. A couple of really exciting things for those of you that are listening. One, uh, HCCA has indicated that our podcasts are now eligible for consideration for up to one continuing education unit. If you are certified through HCCA and the CCB, two, Today, we were just notified by Practice Management Institute, PMI, out of San Antonio, Texas, that if you hold their CMOM certification, their Certified Medical Office Manager, or their Certified Medical Office Compliance Officer, uh, CMCO, Certified Medical Compliance Officer, excuse me, if you hold those two credentials, you are eligible to submit for up to one CEU for each of those towards your required CEUs to maintain your credentials. Those of you that are attorneys that are um, required to gather your continuing legal education units, we have submitted to the American Health Law Association. Um, They have said to uh, inform our listeners that they can um, um, retain any of the podcasts that you have listened to, once we get the final approval, you will be able to submit for consideration up to one continuing legal education unit. And I think that's a huge thing for a lot of folks that are having to take time out of your schedules to engage with us. Uh, We are still waiting on the American Academy of Professional Coders. And as soon as we hear back from them, we will let you know immediately. So as always, thank you again for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with Brianna Santoli and Terry Fletcher, as well as myself, Sean Weiss, on behalf of our entire team at the Compliance Guy Live. Thank you again. And remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Until next time, take care.